Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Is everyone here? Gavin, Riz, Tamika, Samantha, Chance, and Colson? I want all my children to hear this together. Riz is playing down by the particle accelerator sewage experiment. Then he's probably dead or in a different dimension. The point is... The rest of us are together, and I want all of us to remember June 6th, 2023, as the day we began homeschooling. What's homeschooling? It's when you get your education right here at home with your parents. Where else would you get it? Well, you hit upon a very interesting point. There used to be schools. They were in buildings, which were much like the tent we live in, but with harder walls and ceilings. We're all in tents now. Every single person lives in tents. That's correct, Samantha, and that is due to a rash, impulsive mistake by the traitor General Trump, the father-in-law of our divine Emperor Jared. The traitor Trump rushed ahead with an untested new weapon, the quantum matter disruptor, which failed to kill our enemies but weakened the bonds in certain molecules so that cats, buildings, and pies no longer exist. Tell us about the cats, the ones with the sweet apples inside them. No, that was pies. I'm really surprised at the rapid deterioration of knowledge retention. It wasn't all that long ago. So if it was before the bad times, we could all go to school inside a cat. A building? Jeez, did all of you take a stupid pill this morning? Are we going to spend the first year going over and over things that don't exist anymore? Pies were for eating. Buildings were for going inside. Cats were... Cats were pretty useless, actually. Now, today's history lesson. Emperor Jared I was born in a manger in Livingston, New Jersey, to poor parents who were refugees from Jimmy Carter. Was Jimmy Carter a pie? No, Samantha. He was a tent. This is going to be way harder than I thought. Maybe the show about homeschooling will help. And now he was Tim Tebow's anatomy tutor, Colin McEnroe. That is true. Tim Tebow was homeschooled. I was his anatomy tutor. Some of the other stuff that you've heard about that is not true, I just would like to emphasize. So we're going to talk today about uh, the homeschooling movement. Um, It has taken many forms. It has a very interesting history. And it's probably not the story, particularly here in 2017, probably not the story that you think you know. Uh, If you have in your mind some stereotypical or paradigmatic notion of the homeschooled kid and the homeschooled family, probably a little bit off or insufficiently diverse. Um, and we'll tell you about that. Uh, we'll tell you as, as large a version of the story as we can manage. We'll also talk to at least one person who has still some pretty significant qualms uh, about how homeschooling exists today towards the end of the show also. Um, we thought it was important to talk to maybe somebody who does fit your stereotype of a homeschooling parent. Uh, that would be somebody uh, who is homeschooling her children because Uh, She feels that the public school system is insufficiently cognizant of Christian values and principles. So she'll be our final conversation um, on the show today. But we want to begin with that overview, uh, with that big look at um, what it was like and what it is like now. To do that, uh, we have two excellent candidates, uh, Milton Gaither, uh, professor of education at Messiah College in Pennsylvania and author of the book Homeschool and American History. Carrie McDonald, a writer for Natural Mother Magazine, a founding member of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education uh, and co-editor of Choosing Home, 20 Mothers Celebrate Staying Home, Raising Children, and Changing the World. 
So, first of all, welcome to both of you. Um, you know, maybe the first thing to say, uh, Carrie McDonald, is the more that I read about this, the more that I realize that when we say homeschooling, we're kind of talking about a lot of different things. I mean, there's obviously kind of a basic common denominator, but but not everybody homeschools in the same way. Not everybody homeschools for the same reasons. There are all kinds of different learning techniques and learning environments, people using Montessori methods and Charlotte Mason education and theory of multiple intelligences and unschooling and radical unschooling and Waldorf education. And I mean, we can talk about a lot of those things, but maybe the first thing we have to say is there really isn't, or is there, one set uh, of ideas that, that wraps itself around all homeschooling? Well, hi, Colin hi. and Milton. It's great to be with you today. Yes, I really think that homeschooling is a seedbed of education innovation. And just as you mentioned, there are so many different approaches that homeschooling families take. So um, everything from sort of one end of the spectrum where you have families essentially replicating school at home, using the standardized curriculum that they would find in the public school near them and simply um, bringing that into their own homes to then, as you mentioned, uh, this, this multitude of other options related to homeschooling. Um, my family focuses on self-directed education, which would sort of be at the other end of that spectrum of really um, adopting a model of learning as opposed to a model of schooling. So there's a tremendous amount of variety, and what I think is so exciting about homeschooling is that it really places the emphasis on families to identify the right kind of learning model for their family, for their children, for their values, and then to connect with other families and community members who also believe in supporting that kind of educational choice. Um, so, Milton, uh, let's take a look back in history uh, before we get back up to the present here. Um, today is the uh, anniversary of the birthday of Nathan Hale, a great hero here in Connecticut. He was a schoolmaster, which is my way of pointing out that there obviously were public schools uh, of a kind, uh, but he was a schoolmaster at two different schools in Connecticut before he joined the Revolutionary Army. On the other hand, I think 11 of our 22 first presidents of the United States were homeschooled. This was a relatively common thing to do, but not it wasn't it wasn't universal either. So set the stage for us back at the the birth of the United States. What was the status of homeschool? Who did it and who didn't do it? Sure. Well, at the very very beginning, if you go back to the early like say the the Puritans or groups like that, the early settlers, you know, when they came over here from England for the most part, they didn't find much by way of institutions, and so they had to do what they could do, and which meant taking care of their kids in their own houses. Now, what you do find is as settlement gets denser and denser, pretty much as soon as is physically possible, um, these groups of people do start schools. Um, the school that you mentioned a minute ago, you mentioned Nathan Hale. Um, there were schools all over the, the early um, colonial America. They weren't... Um, public schools in the sense of tax-supported, you know, free education, that people paid for them. But people preferred to send their kids to schools when available, but they were very frequently unavailable, especially um, more into the 18th and 19th centuries on the western frontiers. So you, the general pattern you see is when settlement is sparse among English uh, colonists and then later in the states, you have people teaching their kids at home, but as settlement gets more dense, people create schools. At first, these schools are um, we would today say private, although that's a distinction that doesn't really fit in, the, in their setting. But they were paid for by the parents who um, frequented them, and then eventually they become taken over by the government. 
So um, as we move forward in history, um, Kerry, uh, at the time of the Industrial Revolution, um, the burdens on American wage earners became different. Uh, it was not necessarily the case that only one person would work or that there would be time, time in the day uh, for either parent or both parents to do the kind of work that we associate with homeschooling. Was that a force that essentially sapped a little bit of the homeschooling idea? Right. So what we see is that in 1852 here in Massachusetts, where I'm at, um, Horace Mann led the charge to impose the first compulsory schooling statute. And prior to that, there were compulsory, compulsory education statutes, but um, nothing so strict as the compulsory schooling statutes that um, began in Massachusetts and then quickly spread across the country, with Mississippi being the final, final holdout in 1917. And so you had um, compulsory schooling statutes that required children to be in school, although not nearly as long as they are now. Uh, and then, yes, you had the Industrial Revolution that was leading to um, families and production being removed from the home and into the marketplace. Yeah, so, I mean, just to sort of double down a little bit on what Kerry was just saying, Milton. So yeah, as that compulsory education movement begins, uh, as she says, starting in 1852 in Massachusetts, uh, ending 1917, 1918, with Mississippi, the final state jumping on board. I mean, compulsory education means exactly what it sounds like, right? That there's a, that if you don't do it, you face penalties. You can be fined for not sending your kids to the school system. How long did that thinking stay in place? Well, still in place. Um, can I back up a little sure, bit, though? I, th I think when we talk about compulsory education, we want to make, uh, historically speaking, two things happen, and they happened um, in distinct phases. The first phase, and Carrie suggested this, was um, the passage of uh, public school laws. These were not compulsory in the sense of students were required to go, and if they didn't go, the parents would be fined or the you know, threatened with jail time or whatever, but um, the, the towns had to create them. That was, the, that was what made them compulsory, um, so that people were free to frequent them or not, as was their want. Um, you went from the creation of tax-supported schools made available to everybody for free to what she was describing, which was um, you know, tax-supported schools made available to everybody, and if you did not frequent them, you were getting in trouble. Now, why did they make that shift? A lot of reasons. Um, a major one was immigration. Um, there were a lot of immigrants in, in the mid in the 1900s, 19th century, uh, Kerry mentioned uh, you know, that, that law. Between 1840 and 1850, immigration increased by 240%, and a lot of that immigration was in Massachusetts. What did you have? You had a lot of Irish Catholics coming in. You're probably familiar with this story. And the established Protestants who were there were very fearful of these new immigrants. And so what they really wanted was to get these kids to go to their schools. And if the kids didn't go to school, they were going to pass a law to make sure they did. Um, so, uh, just so because t time is short, we have, we have a lot of ground to cover. Um, uh, we, maybe we could just jump ahead in history now. And it seems as though that the time that we start hearing again, Milton, about homeschooling a lot is in the 1960s and 1970s. And, and it really does seem to come at first from that religious sector. I, I mean, do I have this wrong? I mean, my sense anyway is that it, it, were, it was evangelical Christians essentially rejecting the notion that their, their students 
students could be properly educated in a public school environment. Yeah, it's, that's a little bit wrong. Let me, let me uh, finesse it a teeny bit. Um, what you did have, by the 1960s, you had a widespread reaction among conservative Christians um, fearing that the public schools, which they had played the prominent role in creating, and public schools, we need to understand, public schools were created by and for American white Protestants to try to Protestantize the rest of the country. Now, by the 1960s, those schools had grown more um, ideologically diverse, and a lot of the Protestants feel like, felt like the, the schools themselves were no longer reflecting the, the values that they had, and so they began to leave. Now, they went to private schools for the most part at first. Public homeschooling was not on the radar. Homeschooling really began as a movement among the more countercultural left. The key figure there was a man named John Holt, himself mm-hmm. a childless man, um, but he had money and, and, and influence, and he was interested in this movement. And so he found a lot of these countercultural, you know, people used to call them hippies or whatever, fa- families like that who lived, on, lived in communes or lived out on the land. And he got them together and got a movement going. That was in the 1970s. Um, by the early 1980s, conservative Christians got wind of this and thought, hmm, this is an interesting possibility. Many of them were at, at, the present, at that time involved in uh, little small Christian academies that were not doing so well because it costs a lot of money and it's hard to sustain a school, and homeschooling seemed like a more viable alternative, and the homeschooling movement really exploded among conservative Christians in the 1980s. So I would, I, if you wanted to date it, I'd say late 1970s, kind of left of center radicals get involved in homeschooling. Early 1980s, a much larger group of conservative Christians get on board, and they pretty much take over the movement. Um, although, Carrie, I feel as though here in 2017, um, you know, uh, there's there's more of a mix. Uh, that might have been who took over for a while, uh, but but we seem to be getting back to some of the kinds of people uh, that Milton described from the early stages of the homeschooling movement, plus all kinds of other people. I mean, in your experience, who's doing homeschooling right now? Right. So I think the data still points to the idea that the majority of homeschooling families are uh, homeschooling for religious freedom, religious um, values and morals. But you're seeing a tremendous amount of growth in the homeschooling community, particularly in urban, secular families, um, families that are disillusioned by the sort of restrictive, test-driven schooling environments and are looking for something that's more progressive, more innovative, more child-centered and parent-facilitated. Um, And so that's where we're seeing a lot of growth. We're also seeing um, growth. In fact, The Atlantic has reported that one of the most rapidly growing segments of the homeschooling, the modern homeschooling movement, are black families who are frustrated with what they see as a culture of low expectations within public schooling and um, an institutional racism that they feel is rampant. So uh, the Atlantic reports that now about 10% um, that black families represent about 10% of the overall homeschooling population compared to about 16% um, that they represent in the overall American K-12 school population. And we see a lot of growth as well in Muslim communities and Muslim families that are similar to black families finding that they're not um, having sort of the cultural relevancy and tolerance in um, public schools that they would like for their children and re- religious freedom um, and from their perspective as well. So there's a tremendous amount of diversity. We're seeing a lot of exciting things come out of the homeschooling community as a result of that in terms of um, different approaches to curriculum and to teaching and learning and, and, and really focusing on what works for specific families and children. 
Um, you know, Milton, this uh, issue of African-Americans uh, is something that you write about. You talk about how uh, post-emancipation, uh, they tended to look at the school movement, the public schools, as a pillar of fire by night after a clouded day, in the words, words of W.E.B. Du Bois. But even as many blacks looked to the schools to bring them freedom and prosperity, others were concluding that public education was part of what was holding them down. I'm quoting you to you, Milton Gaither. But, um, you know, so I, I, there's is this rise. There are organizations like the National Black Home Educators, which is a networking organization uh, that tries to connect families with uh, who have been doing it with new families and recommending resources such as books, films, uh, speaking uh, information, curriculum. Um, and, and this is, if you think about schools that are either under-resourced or maybe do teach to and about various minority cultures in an either denigrating or condescending way, th- I guess this does make sense as kind of a natural response. Sure. Yeah, um, that's right. And it's an interesting thing about it. You see some of the same distinctions you see in, in the broader black community reflected here as well. Um, uh, as Carrie was saying, each homeschooling family is going to do it for whatever reason they do it. And so some of these African-American homeschoolers are doing so to try to foster in their children a sense of pride and in, in their African, African ancestry, kind of Afrocentric curriculum kind of thing. Others, there's... Um, a significant group of conservative African-Americans who identify very strongly with fundamentalist Christianity, and they feel alienated themselves from the larger broad uh, black community. This happened largely under the Obama administration. Um, you know, to be a black conservative during that time was kind of kind of troubling. And so you have a lot of uh, black homeschoolers are reflective of that. So there's it's a very interesting mix, just like you can find in any other um, subset of the homeschoolers. A lot of African-Americans are, are doing it, and they don't often agree with each other. All right. I did both throw out an idea on social media. I'd love to hear from one of those African-American families. The number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. So, Carrie, if I were, you know, you talked about how your family is doing self-directed learning. My worry would be, at least at a certain age, you know, and I don't know what that age is, 13, let's say, that if a child wanted to pursue stuff in the area we now Put under the umbrella of STEM, that you know, the, at a certain point, there's a probably a fall off in the expertise uh, of the the teacher, you know, parent, uh, and also there's the need for a whole bunch of equipment. I mean, what if a child wants to do stuff that requires? I don't know, a centrifuge. I'm clearly not a STEM person, so I don't know how to ask this question as effectively as I might. But, you know, at a certain point, they're going to need stuff that's just not going to be in the house. How do you deal with that? Right. So a little bit about self-directed education and certainly the work that we do at the Alliance for Self-Directed Education touches on a lot of this. But it's really a modern view of learning that taps into a centuries-old model of autodidacticism or the idea that humans have extraordinary self-educative capacities and can teach themselves successfully when they have the freedom, opportunity, and resources to do so. So I think what you're talking about are the resources. And um, you know, what we find today in the homeschooling community and certainly in the self-directed education space is a tremendously connected, diverse group of families uh, who are really tapping into community resources. And so here I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have tremendous resources for homeschooling families and for all kinds of families. And when you touch on um, adolescence, I think there's even more opportunities for self-directed education as children naturally sort of move beyond um, their, you know, need to be um, watched over by their parents when they're young to really moving into adulthood. And 
self-directed education allows particularly adolescents to be able to come of age as they were really evolutionarily designed to do, and that is in the real world with authentic experiences and real-life mentors and apprenticeships that they um, are otherwise deprived of in a mass schooling model. So I think we see that. And, you know, certainly here in my city, we have lots of opportunities for um, homeschoolers and self-directed learners, learners of all ages to tap into um, library resources, museum resources, lots of classes offered specifically for homeschooling families as well as for general community members, community college uh, opportunities as well. So I think this idea that you know, self-directed education simply means that it's the individual taking the reins of their own learning as opposed to waiting around for someone else to teach them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't ever seek out classes and activities and opportunities to learn from others. It's just they're the ones that are really in the driver's seat for that. So it's a real active learning model as opposed to a passive schooling model. And we see here, for example, in the city, um, homeschoolers who've been homeschooling uh, either from the beginning or, or in middle school and high school, taking classes at the Harvard Extension School and local community colleges and coming out with associate's degrees um, in lieu of high school diplomas. So it doesn't necessarily mean that as a homeschooler or self-directed learner, um, you're not taking advantage of classes and learning from others. It's just you're the one charting your own course. Although, Milton, isn't there a risk? Let, let's imagine that I'm living in a less populated part of Massachusetts than where Carrie is. Let's imagine that I'm 13 years old and I'm living in where Massachusetts, where I think the nearest thing is the Quabbin Reservoir or something. Um, and, and so now, if, if, first of all, my mind could be set on fire by exposure to a really good chemistry teacher or even kind of a just above average chemistry teacher, um, the only place that I would probably encounter that would be when I got out of middle school and, and got into the public high school system. And there isn't necessarily some other person who can ignite my, my mind, uh, you know, anywhere else in the obvious continuum. I mean, isn't there kind of a risk that somebody with a particular kind of inclinations and aptitudes might not even know he or she had them just for lack of the kind of routine exposure that people pumping their way through the system get. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that's possible. Um, your hypothetical individual were that a homeschooling family would probably have recourse to two things. Um, probably not the wonderful resources that Cambridge makes available, but um, hopefully if, if there's enough population density and enough children who homeschool, a local church or somewhere like that may have a, a homeschool co-op. Lots and lots of families, most of families who homeschool um, attend co-ops of some kind. Uh, usually they're once a week um, where families kind of pool their resources. Sometimes they even hire professionals to offer classes. And the kind of class you're talking about, science classes and things, are usually top on the list, those in foreign language classes. Um, a second opportunity, of course, n wouldn't be nearly as good as if you could actually go to a lab. But um, with the rise of the Internet, we saw um, much more equilibrium in terms of the, the age of the students who are homeschooling. In the earlier years of homeschooling, it was mostly younger kids, but the data these days show a fairly even spread from K to 12. And the Internet has largely made that possible so that a lot of the older kids, um, they'll get the best they can uh, for a science education online. So those would be your two choices if you're rural Massachusetts. All right. We have to take a little break here. And, and first of all, I, I want to say, first of all, we've got some calls coming in, including somebody who wants to tell us about the kind of co-op that Milton was just talking about, I think. We want to say thanks to Carrie McDonald, writer for uh, Natural Mother Magazine, founding member of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, co-editor of Choosing Home, 20 member 
Mothers Celebrate Staying Home, Raising Children, and Changing the World. We're going to come back with Rachel Coleman, co-founder and executive director for the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. We'll also talk to some of these people who've been calling up. We're back. We're talking about homeschooling. We're talking to Milton Gaither, uh, professor of education at Messiah College and author of the book Homeschool in American History. Uh, joining us now also is Rachel Coleman, co-founder, executive director of the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. We'll tell you what that is in just a second. Um, but since people are calling up right now and since one of them, Milton just mentioned this whole issue of co-ops. I think we have somebody who's got a co-op uh, down in New Fairfield. Hi, Diane. You're on the air. Hi. Our co-op is in Newtown, actually. Okay. And tell us about it. What does it do? Well, we meet two days a week um, from September through the end of May. We just finished, in fact. Um, We have four class periods a day, times two, and an hour for lunch. And we offer everything from um, arts classes to pre-calculus, science, all kinds of uh, history, writing, literature, um, languages, all of that. And um, what your guest had said earlier about the fact that um, mainly it is parents teaching these classes, but when we have kids with a need or a desire to have a certain class and there isn't a parent who can meet that need, um, we do pool our resources and hire a teacher to, to teach the kids whatever it is that they that they're interested in. That that's really, sounds like a very interesting structural solution. All right. So, and that sounds also like kind of an optimal setting to do stuff like this in. Rachel Coleman, um, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hello. And we should maybe begin by just saying that you yourself were homeschooled, correct? T- tell us about that. Right. I was homeschooled from kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, and, you know, I actually, I was uh, overheard the discussion earlier about STEM and self-directed learning. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention that sort of dovetails um, you know, with my experience, uh, my parents sort of interpreted self-directed learning as, uh, you know, handing me a textbook and letting me teach myself out of it. And I was very bright uh, and I was able to, for the most part, do that. But not everyone can. So I think when we hear the term self-directed learning, there are certain subjects that it is very difficult for a student to teach themselves. For example, math. And and one of the most consistent findings in research on homeschool academics is a math gap. In fact, there's data from some states that suggests that homeschooled students underperform public schooled students in their same demographics in math. And there's data from the, the only colleges that have compared what uh, what degrees homeschooled graduates are uh, pursuing has found that homeschooled graduates are less likely to pursue a STEM degree in college, far less likely than their peers who attend school. So there needs to be more direction and, and less sort of assumption that the student can can do it on their own. Um, and there needs to be an understanding that different students are different. I Again, I actually did relatively well teaching myself out of those textbooks. It was not perfect. But my sister, who was next in line, she really needed more guidance. And, you know, there were times where she just did almost nothing at all because she didn't have the sort of structure and guidance that she needed. Um, so I think there needs to be an understanding of um, the diversity in terms of, of pupils and learning styles as well. Um, Milton, actually, I know you've done some of this research. Where do you come down on what Karen's saying? About self-directed learning? Yeah. 
Sure. I think what Rachel said is Rachel, is, I mean, sorry. What Rachel said is pretty right. Um, you, you have various learning styles, and uh, a lot of homeschooling families will tell you this. Things that work really great with one of their kids just don't work with kid number three or four. Um, so the, the, one of the things, uh, actually, this is something I got from Rachel herself, who wrote a wonderful um, master's thesis on homeschooling in, in a particular town in Indiana. And she found there that there's a substantial group of people who do it not out of any kind of ideological or pedagogical commitment necessarily, but because of just a, a momentary pragmatic need that they have. Um, and increasingly, that's representative of homeschoolers, homeschoolers who, for whatever reason, they need this particular child for this particular year to stay home rather than something that's an ideological commitment for the duration for all of their children. Um, Rachel, I want to talk about something that, uh, I mean, public schools are blunt instruments, you know, and, and they work well for some people. They don't work well for others. Some schools are, are too big and impersonal. Other public schools solve that problem with really dedicated teachers who are really good at nuance. But when they're functioning really well, one of the things that we think public schools do is notice problems that kids might be having and problems that are not strictly pedagogical. There are teachers who are just very good at noticing that this kid is depressed, this kid is withdrawn, this kid is crying. This kid seems to not get very much sleep. This kid seems not to be eating uh, a regular uh, healthy diet. Uh, I could go on and on. There are all kinds of danger signs that get picked up in public school systems. And, and I would assume one concern about homeschooling is there just isn't the equivalent of that. Or, or is, is there somehow in, in some uh, locales? Right. So there's a couple of different levels to this question. One is simply considering that uh, students who are homeschooled, they don't have access to uh, guidance counselors or social workers that are in public schools. So let's say you have a student in, in middle school or high school who is depressed or is going through different things. That Those guidance counselors ideally are there to sort of um, help direct them, answer them questions, uh, point them towards things they may need. When they're homeschooled, they may not always feel comfortable going to those parents about you know being depressed or, or if they try, their parents may kind of blow them off. So they don't really have someone outside of their parents to look to for those sorts of mental health resources. I mean, you know, there may be a, a pastor or a family friend, but it's not sort of with the same level of, of training and awareness of what is out there. But the other part of the problem has to do with with child abuse. And um, the issue is not that homeschooling itself, you know, makes parents abusive or anything like that. The issue is uh, that when abusive parents realize that teachers are willing to call in a report and let social workers know what's going on in their home, they're, you know, it's it's hard to get the exact statistics on this, but a large number of them will pull that child to homeschool them so that teachers won't report in the future. Um, and so actually one, one case that's an excellent example of that is Imani Moss. She was a little girl who died in 2013 in Georgia. And in her case, um, she actually had been previously removed from the home due to founded abuse concerns. In fact, her stepmother um, took a plea deal on child cruelty charges and, and got five years probation on that. She was returned to the home and the case was ultimately closed. You know, the, the social workers decided that enough progress had been made. A year and a half later, a teacher reported concerning, um, you know, overly violent corporal punishment, but it was ultimately screened out as, 
you know, still within the, the realm of legal corporal punishment. And at that point, Imani's parents pulled her to homeschool her. There's nothing to say, you know, a re- pulling a child to homeschool after a recent child abuse report should be, a you know, maybe a red flag or pulling a, a child to homeschool when you've got a past, um, you know, you've pled guilty to, to child cruelty. There's nothing to stop parents with those additional at-risk factors from homeschooling. So Imani's parents, not only were they able to remove her from school, they ceased to let her have any contact with her extended family. So there were grandparents and others who said, you know, we just didn't see her after that and we couldn't gain access to her. And, you know, the parents have the ability to just say no and to just shut them in. And there was actually another case in Georgia where a child was locked in a bedroom for four years. Um, when he was eventually let out, he was so stunted in his growth that he looked like an adolescent, even though he was 18. He looked like he was 12. And his skin was translucent because it hadn't seen sunlight in that long. And obviously, these are extreme cases. But the problem is that when you have a lack of accountability or any form of monitoring, these unscrupulous parents can abuse the laws and and do you know, isolate these children and hide this sort of abuse. And, you know, let's let's dial it down from there. The, those are, as you say, extreme cases, and they're, they deserve to be worried about and, and, and dealt with and addressed. And there's got to be, you know, enough oversight so a kid isn't put in that position for a protracted period of time. But I would say even on a much more mundane level, <laughs> I'm even thinking of my own parents, God rest their souls, They you know, and they were never abusive or mean to me or anything like that. But, you know, there's this word that you use, uh, Rachel, you're writing uh, totalistic. You know, if I were to have just been educated by my parents in my house, that, you know, they did have a very, very encompassing view of the world that maybe differed from some of the views of the world I was exposed to in other places. They were kind of neurotic. I mean, I, I, as much as I loved them and, and thought they were both very smart people, it really would have limited me, particularly at an emotional or psychological level, to be to have them be the primary purveyors of education to me, and 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 particularly if I were even further limited by that from having a, a peer group. I mean, I think in in less extreme situations, it still seems like something that would worry me a little bit. You're always going to be a product of those people. This is one reason that we very much encourage parents who are considering homeschooling or who are homeschooling to ensure that their children have a diverse range of role models, to ensure that you know there are different classes. Um, you know, one of one of your callers earlier mentioned, uh, you know, taking a community college course or things like that. Um, there are other tutoring situations as well. Um, uh, you know, Milton and others have already mentioned co-ops. And one thing we sort of explicitly say to parents is that they need to be aware that the function of teachers isn't just to educate. You know, it's also to inspire and to be a role model and to be one more person who's contributing to that child's life. And they need to make sure um, that they still have a diverse range. We also recommend uh, that public schools, to the extent possible, make their classes and programs available to homeschooled students. So for example, if you were homeschooling a student in 10th grade, and maybe it was, um, you know, like Milton mentioned, like I wrote about in my master's thesis, for pragmatic reasons, school just doesn't wasn't working for that child. Maybe you could still have that child take come back and just take a calculus class and just come back to the school for calculus um, or participate in you know the school's baseball team. So they're still having a sense of community beyond sort of a more limited community, um, these wider ranges in multiple overlapping areas, um, while still having an education that is tailored uh, to whatever their particular needs are. Um- uh, Milton, these are a lot of diff- critiques at a lot of different levels and concerns at a lot of different levels. I mean, how do you react to them in general? I mean, obviously, the, the ones that involve actual abuse are, are terribly disturbing. Sure. Yeah, I think to help give some perspective to it, 
One of the major motivations, probably the major motivation, especially among conservative Christians for doing homeschooling, is kind of to do exactly what you guys are advocating against, which is to shield your children from diversity. Um, There's a great fear among conservative Christians. They feel besieged by the culture. They feel like they've lost control of it, and they deeply uh, fear that 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 culture will take their own children away from them. So it it is not just an accidental byproduct of homeschooling that children are isolated. It's the whole point. The whole goal, for this group of people at least, is to remove as much as possible all of those outside influences that could threaten the integrity of the child's faith. They want the child to, to persist in the faith commitments of the parents. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason you homeschool. Um, so yeah, all of those things that were just recommended are great ideas, but a lot of conservative families are, are not going to accept them. They're not going to want them at all because they, that's, that's the enemy. That's exactly what you don't want. This is a, a popular movement, what I'm describing here. Um, uh, some, you may be familiar with a, a book that's received a lot of attention lately, Rod Dreher's book called The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option is basically the, the desire to create something equivalent to like Benedictine monasteries, but in this case for families, families of the like-minded who separate away, segregate themselves completely from the mainstream culture and try to perpetuate what they see as a culture of, of purity, of uh, integrity, of spiritual um, power within themselves. Um, I want to grab a call here uh, coming in from Oregon. Uh, this is, uh, I think, Brian from Oregon. Hi, you're on the air. Yeah, this is Brian in, out in Oregon, and one of my main concerns about Rachel's comments is that she's implying that if somebody's homeschooled, they're automatically at risk, you know, for abuse or something. And I think it's really important for not to be too much uh, counseling parents about this. I mean, the ideas of interacting with other people are fine. But the research shows, both from the journalistic article her group did, there's no significant difference, they say, in terms of abuse and child fatalities. Uh, secondly, if, if we wanted to go with empirical research, the suggestion is if a child's in public school, they're higher risk for abuse sexually and harassment by teachers. So it's kind of strange for her to be you know, promoting that concept on air. It's a philosophical idea she's promoting, and her group promotes that uh, the government is kind of like mommy and daddy to all and will profile you if you homeschool. So I think that's kind of a bad idea philosophically in America. Rachel, I want you to be able to respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. So Barbara Knox did a study in 2014 where she looked at victims of child torture. And of the school-age cases she examined, 47% of the children had been in school and were removed from school to be homeschooled. So it's 47%. And the majority of the rest of the students were simply never enrolled in school. So it's clear that, uh, particularly for severe abuse, homeschooling makes it um, makes it easier to conceal that sort of abuse. And I mean, for example, it's very difficult to starve your child to death if they attend public school. But that is one thing that we see repeatedly in many, many of these cases where children who are chained up for years, you cannot chain a child in their bedroom for years if they attend public school. So there are certain problems that can can occur. Um, you know, I would, I would also say one point I just made was talking about the problems with homeschooling at-risk children. I most specifically did not say that, you know, homeschooling makes children at risk. One thing we advocate for is a screening system to say when there are cases where somebody's on probation because they pleaded guilty to child abuse in the past or they've had multiple founded abuse reports or a previous conviction or, you know, these various risk factors. Um, there was actually a bill in Pennsylvania that would have done a risk assessment in cases where a child is pulled to homeschool 18 months after a founded abuse claim. And so what we're saying is we need to understand that for these children who are already at risk, being homeschooled increases their risk. And we need to find a way 
way to ensure that homeschooling is being used by those parents who are, you know, ha- have the intention of furthering their children and not these parents who are honestly just doing it to avoid social services. And I also wanted to say something regarding um, one of Milton's comments, uh, namely that when – hang on, I lost my train of thought. Okay. I'm sorry. But but in addressing the, the abuse issue, there does need to be more research. And we are not saying that the children who attend school are never abused. But most abuse occurs. It's family members. It's family friends. Uh, that is where the majority of it occurs. And when you have children who their circle in some cases is limited to those people, they don't necessarily have people outside of that they can go to when they have a problem. Right. Oh, I just We're, remembered okay. my, yeah, what I was going to say regarding... Milton's point with the Benedict option, if I may, uh, depending on where you want to take this. Um, yeah, if you could do that really quickly, then I, I've got to get okay. to a break. Yeah, Right, right. Real quick. So um, the problem with the idea uh, among these conservative Christian homeschool parents that they can sort of protect their children from these outside influences um, is that their children eventually grow up. And I have spoken with many, 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 many individuals who grew up in families like this only to become adults and, and in some cases go to college and in some cases not, just sort of um, you know, get jobs or enter the world in, in various ways, who suddenly feel like they'd been sort of deceived, that they, they were only given a limited set of information. And they sort of look around and they see the world doesn't look exactly the way their parents said it did. And so you cannot keep certain sorts of information away from children forever. And one thing I think that we can combat that sort of isolation is to, um, you know, there's various evangelical Christians who've explicitly said, you need to be exposing your children to these things and to other people while they're still in the home, while you can give them guidance. So they can come home and say, Susie said this, and you can help them rather than them not experiencing Susie until they're out of the home as adults. And you know, so it's a totally different dynamic. So I think there are ways within um, sort of the conservative Christian community to discuss um, what it means to raise a child um, you know, who's sort of sound in, in their beliefs or in who they are. All right. I think Susie just called it, and she's very upset that she's being disgusted this way. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we do have to take a break, however, uh, and we do want to thank uh, both of the guests that we've been talking to uh, right now. That's uh, Milton Gaither, uh, his book, Homeschool in American History, Rachel Coleman, who's the uh, executive director of the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. Let's take a break, and we'll have some time to talk to somebody who is doing homeschooling for those Christian reasons. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, who is captain of the dishwashing team at his home school, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish was raised in a school. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lindsay Lohan. On tomorrow's show, we remind you about the history and meaning of treason. Thursday, Colin and John Dankosky will augment NPR's coverage of James Comey's testimony. Friday, an all-female nose goes to see Wonder Woman. And now, back to Colin. Right. So one thing we've established, I think, is the homeschooling movement is very diverse. People do homeschooling for a whole bunch of reasons. They're all over the political and religious spectrum. They also include people who whose children are exhibiting or believed to exhibit prodigious abilities in certain ways. Chris Thiele, who's the host of Prairie Home Companion, was homeschooled because 
he already had kind of a professional uh, musical career starting around age eight. Um, so there's lots of reasons to homeschool them. But, you know, if people have in their minds an archetype uh, for homeschooling, it probably still is that notion of people who feel as though the, uh, they can't raise their children in a Christian environment and have them exposed to what goes on in public schools. It just it, There's just not a, a compatibility. So we wanted to make sure that we got that um, viewpoint on. Misty Bailey, homeschooling mother of three and author of Homeschooling 101. You can read her blog at findingjoyinthejourney.net. I'll put all this up on the website so you can find it more easily. Uh, so, uh, Misty Bailey, um, we've had a long conversation about homeschooling already, but tell us a little bit about what it is you do and why you do it. Okay. Um, so, hello. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I have been homeschooling pretty much from the beginning. Um, my oldest went to public preschool for about three months when she was five, and then we pulled her out. Um, and began homeschooling, and we have been homeschooling ever since. So we started in 2009. My kids are now sixth grade, fourth grade, and my little boy is in kindergarten. And uh, is it your plan to take this the whole way, or, I mean, what about when they're high school aged? So um, as of right now, we have always made up our minds that, you know, we are homeschooling until God tells us no longer to do it. Um, my oldest actually at this point in time plans on going to our local vocational school, um, for her junior and senior year to study culinary arts. Um, my middle wants to be a veterinarian, so we do plan on homeschooling her through high school and then she'll go into college. And then my, my son's too young to really think of that yet. Um, so we'll cross that bridge when he gets there. Um, you know, uh, I, I thought uh, in our, the, towards the end of our previous segment, Rachel raised an interesting question, which was, um, you know, if your kids go to public schools and then they hear something, as they will, they'll hear something that will be disconcerting to them or contrary to the beliefs that are practiced at home, they'll come home and tell you about it. Whereas uh, her, her argument was, if you don't do that, then by the time they're hearing that kind of thing, uh, you don't have the opportunity, I mean, they're older and, and they're less likely maybe to, to reality test with you. What's your reaction to that? Well, I disagree, respectively. Um, my children, like I said, we, they, we've homeschooled from the beginning, but that does not mean that they have not been exposed to um, op opposing beliefs. Um, they are out, you know, in the world with 4-H and sports and different things like that. So they have been exposed to opposing beliefs. And they have, we have been able to have those discussions at home. Um, also, many of our curriculums that we have used have kind of um, allowed both viewpoints to, to arise for us to discuss both. Um, so I, I respectively disagree. I think it really depends on how you are homeschooling. Um, if you are, you know, going out and socializing with the world, um, whether it be through co-ops, through, you know, church activities, through um, extracurricular activities, your kids are going to be exposed to all different mm. viewpoints unless they are hiding under a rock yeah, somewhere. So you um, they can get opposed to, they can get exposed to those even at Walmart. Um, so um, I respectfully disagree with that. So you, you talked about uh, curriculums that sometimes even exhibit both viewpoints. I assume the viewpoints that you're teaching, that you're including in your homeschool curriculum, are very specifically Christian in nature, uh, that the science leans towards creationism, that kind of thing. Yes, you are correct. And, and, and so uh, is that just true across the board? In other words, if you're teaching them English and teaching them literature, you're teaching them from Christian literature, et cetera? 
yes and no. I mean, you know, we don't necessarily monitor everything that they read. Um, you know, my kids have are allowed to read the Harry Potter books. Um, you know, they've watched movies that aren't necessarily always Christian-based. Um, but we truly believe that it is our job to give them a foundation in our faith, um, and that is one of the biggest reasons why we homeschool. And so, in other words, uh, yeah, I, I think this is an important thing to talk about. We only have two or three minutes in which to talk about it. But in other words, um, you'd be uncomfortable with your kids going to school, hearing, say, a different version of science that doesn't incorporate any biblical re- uh, teachings and, in fact, emphatically rejects them. You, you'd be uncomfortable with that even if you had the opportunity when the kids came home to tell a different story. Um, I think it depends on their age. Um, I would not throw my kindergartner into that environment. Um, my oldest, she is in sixth grade going into seventh. Um, I feel like she has enough of a foundation that I'm not against that. You know, for example, um, we have went and took tours um, of caves, for example, and they have talked about those caves being millions of years old. I didn't cover their ears and be like, oh, no, I don't want you to listen to that. Um, instead, you know, it gave us the opportunity to talk to them about it later. And actually, my um, middle child at the time was like third grade and she raised her hand and she's like I don't believe those are a million years old Um, and she had a conversation with the um, presenter about it afterwards I think it just depends on the age of the child and whether or not their foundation is solid um, very quickly, we're, we're almost out of time, but um, you're in Ohio, you know, there were some concerns raised on the show today about, you know, I mean, you're obviously a very nice person, but what if parents are not nice people and they're, they're doing bad things to their kids? Can Ohio know about that? Do they have a way of kind of looking inside what's going on? Well, no, but I think what if the kids are in public school and the parents are doing something bad to their kids? Yeah. <laughs> I think that can go either way. That can go whether their child is homeschooled or whether they're not homeschooled. So I don't really think that that has a bearing on whether, you know, or not. I hear you. Uh, I mean, the hope is that sometimes, as I said earlier in the show, that a a teacher will spot uh, signs of trouble. Uh, And, and, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. Um, Look, we're out of time. Misty Bailey, I'm so glad that you did give us some of your time, taking time away from homeschooling three children, author of Homeschooling 101. You can read her blog at findingyourjoyinthejourney.net. Tomorrow we're going to have our treason show (laughs) I'm mentally racking my brain for what's happening tomorrow. I'll be on the wheelhouse uh, early in the morning at 9 o'clock. We'll have our treason show on at 1. And well, that's not right, is it? That is a, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's happening tomorrow. That's honestly the truth. Uh, but we will be involved in Thursday in some James Comey coverage. You can really go. You can do it so, so. I know you didn't learn it at home. Okay, class, open your books to page. Excuse me, young lady? Who are you, and what are you doing here? I've never seen you before. Yeah, I'm homeschooled, but I've been suspended, so here I am.